Hello, and welcome to episode 120 of our podcast. My name is Chris McNutt, and I'm part of the progressive education nonprofit, Human Restoration Project. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this is brought to you by our supporters, three of whom are Connie Fletcher, Savannah Lay, and Ryan Boren. Thank you for your ongoing support. You can learn more about the Human Restoration Project on our website, humanrestorationproject.org, or find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. On today's podcast, we are joined by Dr. Antonia Darter. Antonia is an internationally recognized activist scholar and professor emerita at Loyola Marymount University, where for more than a decade, she held the Levy Presidential Endowed Chair of Ethics and Moral Leadership. Spanning over four decades, she has worked to counter social and material inequities in schools and society, including through critical scholarship, activism, and authoring books such as Reinventing Paulo Ferreira, A Pedagogy of Love, a Dissonant Voice, Essays on Culture, Pedagogy, and Power, and Culture and Difference, Critical Perspectives on the Bicultural Experience in the United States. Further, she wrote and produced a student-community-driven, award-winning documentary, The Pervasiveness of Oppression. It's a true honor to have you on the podcast, Antonia. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Chris. I'm happy to be here. I'm, I mean, always when we can get a chance to talk about, you know, issues that are important and, and have a little bit of, you know, of dialogue that often we don't, you know, we get so busy in other places, but this is a, a great moment to just, you know, stop for a, a bit and, and have a chat. So I, I like that. I figure we just open up with a broad question to frame what we're talking about. What makes you do this work? What's the purpose of education? What's really driving you forward to keep pushing for this work when it's so difficult yet, yet so needed? I think, um, you know, for me, it's so related to my lived experience. I mean, I grew up very, very poor. I grew up in very, very difficult conditions. Um, I sometimes talk about my childhood being kind of growing up in a war zone, but in the urban war zone. And that, what I always felt was that there was something different. You know, there's a different way for us to be able to live. And there was different opportunities that we were not having. You know, you would, even if you saw the television, even back in the you know 60s, you, there was, you know, our families did not look like, you know, Donna Reed, that kind of stuff, right? But to Beaver, you know, I was like, what? Um, but there was a, a sense that there was something in between all of that that had to do, you know, within our communities and outside of our communities, but not a real clear sense of that until, you know, little by little, becoming more politicized and becoming more aware of the way that, you know, the larger societal issues impact on our community and they impact on us as individuals um, in, in a whole lot of different ways, um, particularly for me as um, a Puerto Rican, you know, I was born colonized. Uh, I still consider myself a colonized subject as long as Puerto Rico is not independent and continues to be treated as a stepchild. It's a colony of the United States who can use Commonwealth language, but it's a colony. Um, the way it's treated is absolutely in colonial, in, a, in colonial terms. Um, and so for me, understanding myself from that context and, um, but then, you know, coming to the States and, and growing up here and dealing with what it means to, to live in poverty, to go to schools, um, where, you know, there there were some good teachers always, there's some good teachers, but there were a lot of teachers who treated us, many of us, and I know I I felt it personally, that somehow we were we were dumb. We were, you know, not not intelligent, not capable, somehow we were deficient. Um, and there was no sense of ever engaging what was really going on in our lives, whether, you know, what was going on in our, our families, um, in terms of poverty and what was going on in our communities and the lack of of resources and access that we had. So for me, all of that became very fertile uh, material, you know, for me to learn and to grow. And, and it also um, inspired me. Um, I believed it could be different. I believed that we had to, we had to be willing to struggle to change the world. And as I grew and as I developed, you know, I came across people and books and conversations and social movement work that <clears throat> very much um, reinforced 
that that was the truth, that, 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 we were, that we were capable of creating a different kind of world. This world that we were living in, you know, was not a, a, a fait accompli, as they say, you know, wasn't, it wasn't a fin or a lady would say it wasn't finished. It was an unfinished world. <clears throat> and so the, in, in dealing with the unfinishedness, it also meant a kind of personal responsibility. What was my responsibility um, in my work, in my life, in my relationships, to be able to um, contribute to making the kind of world that I felt that we needed? And that I want it for my children. That that's a better way of putting my children, and you know, later my grandchildren. I have had five granddaughters, so I I see how you know how things continue, and believe that in fact we have a role to play. You know, as historical, you know, subjects of history, as as Freddie would put it, and that we do that by understanding that that our responsibility as subjects of history is not only in relationship to our own lives, but all the lives we touch, and that. You know, we live in an interdependent world, despite whatever is said. Uh, and so learning to work with others and to struggle with others um, became a really powerful impetus for me in my work. That point you make about building a better world is such an interesting statement when you juxtapose it next to the mission statements of schools that often say something like preparing students for the future, which translates to jobs in STEM, uh, preparing good listeners, those that could easily uh, listen on the job, and to be more radical for a second, those who could easily be exploited, right, and that fit within that system. So therefore, it shouldn't be surprising, given the world that we see today, what happens when you explicitly focus on STEM, job-based, career readiness, et cetera? Well, I, I think the first place we start is the purpose, you know, what is our purpose for education? Why, why, you know, why the hell are we doing this? Uh, why, why do we have, you know, schools and all of this? And, you know, why do we fight for schools? Because I think that's an important uh, question. You know, what are we fighting for in those schools? And why we, I mean, Paulo was very adamant, people like Jeru and others are very adamant that schools are sites for struggle, they're terrains of struggle, and that they, that we need to continue to struggle for the public because that's part of the reality of our lives, you know, it, and it is a, a means by which we can work and that we can transform society. So the, the purpose of why we do education or what education is for, for me, has always been in, to support, you know, the evolution of our humanity, to support students in developing their capacities to contribute to the world in ways that affirm relationships of love and compassion and solidarity, you know, across all relationships and across all communities, that we have, we have to be prepared for that, that it doesn't just happen. We don't just learn how to do relationships. Relationships are powerful means by which we transform and recreate the world. So for people who don't want anything to do with the relationships, which is part of the problem, we have a kind of schooling that is very autocratic. We have a kind of schooling that's very instrumental, particularly for you know, oppressed communities. Um, and what we begin to see is that there is a purpose for those for that approach, because if you don't really want people to participate in transforming or having any real participation in changing the world, you, you're going to want to keep them in in a very fragmented sense of understanding the world. You know, so 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 much of this work is about, you know, how do we recognize that the labor for ourselves and each other is powerful and effective and compelling ways for us to be able to see that we are fully interdependent human beings, that cultivating solidarity and compassion and kindness is an important step, you know, in transforming the inequalities and injustice in the world. And that begins in our relationship with children, you know, so our relationship with students. It doesn't begin when they're in high school or when they get to college. It has to begin from the very get-go of education. And so the purpose then becomes important because it's going to shape how we teach is going to shape what we think is important, right? Um, and I think one of the, the 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 pieces that is always interesting to me, so much of education has been, you know, about reading and writing, reading and writing. <laughs> and I think that we can't accomplish a, a a kind of humanizing education unless we become literate in the ways of the mind, of the heart, of the body and spirit. I mean, I, those I see those as human faculties. I don't I see those as 
they're, they're just part of who we are as human beings. They're there. They're resources for us to be able to, to evolve and develop and that they work in integral ways to help us in, in creating a good life and creating what a good life is for me is where, where there are relationships where we are nurtured and, you know, we can cultivate opportunities to, to work and do labor that, that makes us happy, that makes us feel connected to each other and to, and to the world itself. So I think that what, when we think of literacy, we need to change how we think of literacy. We need to do this literacy that goes beyond simply reading and writing. And we have to be willing to embrace what many of us call a decolonizing and a multidimensional approach in how we express, for example, an ethics of humanity. How do, how do we understand an ethics of humanity in this very multidimensional way? So we're not thinking, oh, there's one way to be a human being, or there's one way to make the world better. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is creating a kind of dynamic context and dynamic reality that is anchored in relationships of love and understanding and compassion and and true sense of caring for one another. We need to care about each other. And at the very moment that there are people that we don't care about, we need to ask ourselves in what way we are participating in perpetuating oppression out in the world. And so, so there's this kind of dialectical relationship between understanding ourselves as individuals and understanding the world. Um, I think that this the, the other element that often is lost here and is really important to our work is that there is this kind of delicate ecological existence that we are a part of. And often that that element is not even, you know, really brought forth in education or in the preparation of teachers, that we understand the classroom as an ecology, that we understand that, that everyone involved in one way or another is being touched and moved. It's not just, it's not a hierarchical relationship where it's just a teacher doing, you know, you know, uh, having an impact on the students. And in fact, it is an ecological process, and that if it is a hierarchical, hierarchical relationship, the teacher themselves is being affected as well. You know, in 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 a sense, you know, hardening their heart, hardening you know their sense of being the expert and the the the, the one who should have the power. It, it it they're being affected whether they they want to you know see it that way or not. And of course, students are being affected in terms of how that particular system within a classroom is allowing them to have voice or is giving them an opportunity to participate or an opportunity to, to have, you know, to really feel that they have some uh, ability to move around the classroom and to, and to be part of creating the life of the classroom rather than the life of the classroom being created upon them. So, so many of these elements to me then is about you know, deeply understanding how culture and power work. So, you, you know, you can see why that's such an important aspect of my work and how it's enacted then within the context of education in very often very dehumanizing and traumatic ways, particularly for students who reside within racialized and economically oppressed communities. And I think that's one of the hardest things for teachers to come to terms with, that Many of the things they think are good for them, you know, they're doing it for their good, are actually very autocratic and actually re-traumatize students uh, or traumatize them within the context of, of education. Yeah, as opposed to preparing students for a better world and then diving into what exactly does that mean. Um, obviously, a lot of your work is inspired by Paulo Freire, as well as other folks in the critical pedagogy space. In reinventing Paulo Freire, one of the books that you wrote, it really resonated with me because uh, I read it after we ar had already founded our nonprofit, which is called Human Restoration Project. And the language of that book is just, you know, I, I wish I would have read the book first because our name could be based off scholarship and just not a fun, cool name. One of the chapters in the book is called Restoring Our Humanity um, and talking about what that means. And it seems evident that restoring our humanity is linked to creating a better world. In the chapter, you use a terminology like uh, revolutionary praxis or a pedagogy of love or a pedagogy of hope. What does that mean or how do we build a better future through the classroom? Where do we start with that? Right. Um, I, I think it's, it's easier for me. I you know, if, I can, if we can have a conversation so I can kind of respond to what you're saying, because I think the point you're making is, is super important. And then I'll try to get back to it if I remember. <laughs> you, you remind me if I don't. 
Um, but, you know, I think that the point that you're making is, is an essential one and one that often gets completely missed. There's still this attitude. I mean, the colonizing attitude of schools is that they are doing for, they are doing for the community. They are doing for the student. You know, it's not, there's not a sense that there's a relationship here and that the school is as much, can, as, can be as much nourished and nurtured by the by what the students and the family and the community bring to the school it's it always tends to be the going out you know which is um part of the problem so then you have parents working class parents you have we have to understand that often what they're talking about is how they were educated that's they were educated in that way and that and they were told that you know this is you know doing your homework and this and you know following the rules and all of that that's how you're going to get a job and blah 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 so you i think that that the first thing that we have to understand is their lived history and where they're coming from you know the other thing we have to deal with is that we often want to make these changes in the curriculum or want to bring these different ideas to the students and the parents are completely left out of the equation so they're never invited. There's never a in, in tandem kind of um, dialogue going on with the parents. So the parents feel, you know, the, the parents are kind of put on the outside, and they their only way to kind of reassert themselves into the conversation is to, you know, say, well, wait a minute, I don't know what you're doing here, I'm, and there's no there's no engaging the parents in a way that helps them to see and and also experience not just you know just by telling them but actually experiencing how the kind of education that you're trying to do with with their children is actually going to not only allow students to know how to deal with whatever the boundaries are in a in a work situation but allow them to actually you know, have critical abilities, critical capacities to engage what is happening in their workplace and to actually be able to transform it or, or even to begin to believe that they may be able to do other things that are more in, in line with who they are, who that child is. Every parent, I've never known a parent, for example, who said they didn't want their kid to go to college. You know, so that, that's it. You know, but there seldom are conversations with working class parents early on in terms of of preparing you know children to become critical so that when they go into university they're able to really have an empowered sense of themselves that they can you know understand that they have the right to participate in their own learning and it starts early on so i think one of the the pieces that that your comment brings up for me is that we cannot ignore our responsibility to have communication, schools and community, you know, teachers with parents, and that parents should not be seen as a stumbling block to children's education. <laughs> parents should be seen as absolutely needing and, and wanting to be a part of their children's education. And we have to create the avenues for that. Unfortunately, we're dealing with structures that are that don't often allow they don't allow dialogue between parents and teachers they don't allow dialogue between teachers and teachers themselves right and i and i feel that in off, that often that structure which is very hierarchical very autocratic it is done on purpose because if people start engaging each other around common concerns and common you know um uh, desires and dreams and visions you know, they become dangerous because <laughs> then they realize, oh my God, you know, this doesn't have to be this way. They, they begin to, to say, they begin to question it and say, well, why is this this way? You know, why can't we change it? And, and as soon as you get to that place, often what you have is a lot of pushback. So people will say, well, we want, I'll give you an example. In, um, in Chicago, a number of years ago, uh, back in the 80s, they had, um, you know, the, they had the uh, local school councils, and they, which was supposed to give, you know, more power to the, 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 the community, right? So the community was going to be able to get involved. So for example, the Puerto Rican Cultural Center, who's had an incredible, I mean, it's just incredible work in Chicago, um, 
but they, you know, they, they saw that as, okay, we're going, we're as a community, we're going to get involved in those local you know, school councils. And they had the local school councils could hire and fire. They could, you know, they could engage questions, of curriculum. I mean, just all sorts of things. Right. Well, of course, what happened as they began to, to get very involved at, and um, and begin to ask for more, you know, culturally uh, appropriate kinds of, of uh, curriculum and and uh, and other opportunities for their children, et cetera. That they they got strong, and pretty soon, you know, there was backlash. There was definitely backlash, you know. And now, you know, essentially those those um, councils. I mean, that the, that they had to restructure everything because. There was so much strength that was being built. I mean, what people have done, of course, if they, you know, they're just like, okay, we can, we'll work another way then, and we'll, you know, they keep kind of moving. But what I'm trying to say is that the structure of schools inherently as they exist are not democratic. So we can talk about, you know, democratic schooling all we want, but if we don't deal with the fact that we have structures that are, you know, fundamentally undemocratic, then what we what we have to understand is the structures are part of what produce what happens, you know, because the structures also produce the relationships that we're allowed to have, whether it's between te- students, between teachers and teachers, teachers and administration, teachers and community, you know. And I think that so much of our capacity to think more multidimensionally about how schools exist in communities. In addition to that, that part of what happens uh, with parents is that there's all this talk about, you know, the the children um, and trying, you know, these new things with their children and stuff, but there's never a lot of conversation about asking the parents, what's going on in your lives? You know, what are some, what are things that, you know, what are you needing? How can we, you know, as a school community, parent school community, you know, address some of the other issues. And part of what happens with that is just the way it happens in the classroom, it happens out in the world. You know, there's a fragmentation of how we deal with the needs of human beings. So, you know, you either you're looking at health and you're looking at health here in a very isolated way. You're looking, you know, at uh, at economic development. It's over here in a very, you know, isolated way. Seldom is there this truly multidimensional lens that helps us to position schools within a larger liberatory structure that would be necessary in order for us to create truly, you know, just environments, just and loving worlds in which we could exist and where we could begin to to feel that sense of empowerment and participation and, and find the ways in which then, you know, young people come to recognize the world as theirs, <laughs> you know, that this, this life, this world that, that we exist, it's ours. Nobody, you know, people who, who, who run around, you know, because they're wealthy and rich and that, that they somehow own it. Part of our struggle is how do we begin to feel, no, we own the world, all of us together, you know, and begin to push back uh, against those very um, hierarchical and privileged and very unjust, you know, forms of life that have become just kind of second nature in this society. The point you're making about the flourishing notions of the classroom, when you remove a lot of those barriers to learning, I think are are very self-evident. I used to teach ninth grade, and of course, that was part of a new building for them. That's the high school session of the building. Our class was fairly progressive. Um, students had a lot of selection over what they were doing. They voted on curriculum. A lot of it was ungraded and project-based. And a lot of it was social justice driven. Uh, folks were learning about queer artists, black artists, indigenous artists, et cetera. And it's amazing what kids would do when they're exposed to situations that are open-ended like this. Um, the quality of what they do when they're working that interested them in, in their community is astonishing. It makes you want to come in every single day. However, there were also circumstances where the student or maybe their family didn't buy into those ideas about shifting those systems within school. Um, there were many circumstances where parents would question our grading policy or our discipline policy. They would say that it wasn't uh, robust or, or harsh enough. It wasn't harsh like a typical school would be. And it was worth noting that a lot of these concerns came from uh, working class families. The argument being that the the workplace, which of course is super dehumanizing, 
the workplace would need kids to learn this because that's just how things are. And we know that our work is rooted in helping students learn how to channel their energy toward changing that system. But that's a difficult narrative to someone who's working multiple jobs, who's struggling financially day after day, who wants a better future for their kids. It's a risk for them to invest in a school which may not be seen as like, quote unquote, college and career ready. How do you then shift that purpose of school and have that discussion with families beyond just changing teachers' minds? You have to also help families and students be onboarded to this practice. Yeah, when you fail to see things in systems, it leads to a lot of banal platitudes about school in general. Things like you're talking about screen time, phone use, reading test scores, the ACT scores, things that could lead to probably better testing, sure, but it's not going to lead to meaningful change, especially for students at the boundaries where those things were often intentionally designed to keep people out. So, of course, they're, they're not working. The case in point example would be poverty as a concept, right? So many educational policies are taken with the sole reason of helping students escape poverty, not recognizing that poverty is a political, it's a policy decision. It's not an individual decision that teachers will somehow solve. Manufacture, I think using you know, Chomsky's term. I mean, people don't want to believe that because even in their churches, you know, it's like, oh, the poor will always be with us. Well, shit, like why? <laughs> <laughs> Why shall the poor will always be with us? You know, we we have the capacity to transform the way you know money is distributed. You know, the way wealth is distributed. I mean, we have the capacity to do that. It is just that how we're educated and the 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 ways in which we're in many ways channeled in life because education becomes a kind of interesting you talk about tracking within school but it's it's more about tracking beyond schools that we need we we need to look at like i i remember i was uh, at at some event and and it was oh what was it the princess bride my 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 kids love the princess bride you know, that film right so so it was uh, uh, the director. I mean, this is one thing as you start getting getting old at 70, sometimes I forget the names, but the, the director, um, oh gosh, anyway, the director and um, I can't remember, it was a writer of, uh, of the Rob script or, or, I, I looked yeah, up. Rob Reiner, thank you. Rob Reiner was, and, and someone was, right? And so what was interesting is that both of these guys are having a conversation up in the stage and, you know, and, and different things about the, that what starts to come out is that they both come from families, <laughs> wealthy families, and who were in the business. And then I, you know, that that just clicked with me. And then I started to think about this, and I started to look how you know different people get positioned. And I realized, my goodness, whether you're talking about attorneys, whether you're talking about you know the film industry, actors, educators, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a tendency for people to follow in familial lines at levels that we don't acknowledge. We pretend, oh, like you can be anything you want. No, no, the, the truth of the matter is some people actually have a head start at that, you know, because of the experiences and the opportunities that their families, you know, provided for them. And so I think, <laughs> I think I'm, I, yeah. But, you know, it works on all sorts of levels. And so knowledge, then you know, there's an interesting way in which the knowledge gets tracked um, from the get go. And so if we really wanted to begin to open that up, we'd have to begin to see why is it that certain people end up more are more likely to be able to follow certain um, paths in terms of work and, and others are not, or opportunities and others are not, you know, those, those questions become important. And then of course, there's always the, the stuff that I've got, have to deal with, you know, when people are like, oh, well, you grew up so poor and, you know, you, and, and, and look at you. And I'm like, you know, I'm damn, you know, accident of a history. There's a few of us that, you know, we just happened, to, you know, somehow be in the right place at the right time. But, you know, rather than taking that on and feeling like, oh yes, of course I could do it. So if I, you know, and it's just, it's like, there's, there's relationships and realities and conditions, the best conditions that are there that have an impact on our lives. It's not just what's happening individually in our head or in our own little, you know, little life. 
if we are linked to all these, you know, other um, conditions that are at work that are having an impact on our lives. And I think that it is a way of thinking. It's a different way of thinking about the world, but I believe it's the way we need to think if, in fact, we are serious about wanting to create a better world, a more loving world. We have to deal with aggression, for example, within schools. There is so much aggression. I mean, and, and people don't, you know, because an autocratic form of education, inherent in that is, a, is an aggression because it requires, in order to maintain the structure, unequal, uneven, right? You, there's going to be ways in which they're, 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 there's just an aggressive kind of pushing back anytime someone wants to get out of there, you know? So like when teachers try to organize so they have more, more to say about what's going on in their classroom, you, you see it immediately, you see it immediately, or students, students, you know? It's a very interesting kind of process, but it has to do with the manner in which also aggression happens in, in some subtle ways, you know? And I think um, it happens in the classroom by the way that kids are talked to or, you know, teachers trying to be funny, like they're going to be funny. And then they make fun of students, you know, and there's, and it's like, Oh, you know, they can, they can take it. I mean, there's a lot of bullshit ideas. There's no other way to put it, you know, just ridiculous ideas about how to be with students. That is just absolutely shameful and disgraceful. And yet teachers are taught, you know, are somehow given the, the green light. To, to persist, they're not called on them. So, I mean, I've heard teachers yelling, you know, yelling. I'm the, I've come to the belief, and part of it is the hard work that I've done internally, which I believe teachers have to do their own internal work because we all get triggered. You know, kids, you know, a kid can trigger us. But we need to take responsibility as the adult in that, in that classroom or as the person who, who is there as a teacher has a responsibility to facilitate the well-being of kids. And I don't think you do that by yelling at them to get over there. And, you know, I think we have to begin to see that we ourselves have been duped into believing that aggressive ways of talking to each other and being with each other is, you know, is the only way we can control these kids, you know, kind of thing. And it's not true. I mean, that my experience has been completely different when I'm dealing with children. I mean, when children feel recognized and heard when they're engaged in a consistent way, because then of course what happens is if you, if a kid, if kids have been used to being, you know, kind of yelled at or, or, you know, and a teacher all of a sudden starts to, you know, comes, <laughs> it happens when a teacher, kids have been in a, in a classroom that has been pretty, pretty aggressive and pretty oppressive. And then they, then they come, you probably know this one, and they come into a classroom and the teacher is really working to, kind of democratize the process, give kids more. Well, at first it's chaos. And we should not be surprised I mean, because the kids are like, what, what the hell's going on here? You know, and, and they're pushing back and they're doing all of that. But our willingness to stay with the vision and to stay with the work and, and the process of creating space is like, we got to listen to them. We got. We we have to. We have to stay with it. And what happens is relationships are powerful when they're genuine. Then those relationships begin to evolve, and and they get a substance to it. And that substance between the teachers' relationship with the kids and kids' relationships with each other in the classroom, where a sense of community is being built and that kind of thing, it transforms the experience of learning. And it's it's something that you said earlier that you know they will they will do like ten times anything you expect it from them. I mean, it's just it is it is powerful. It is amazing, and it is like the superpower that most people refuse. Maybe they don't. I shouldn't say they refuse. Maybe they they're just they've been taught that relationships are dangerous. You know, if we think about. What happens in terms of teaching, this professionalization of teaching, you know, to me is another piece of bullshit. But anyway, the professionalization, any professionalization, what that's talking about always oh, that you should somehow maintain that hierarchical place as the expert or, you know, and that you should distance, you know, so the relationship that you have, you have to create a distance with the kids because that's how they're going to respect you and blah, 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 blah. All this, it's all this nonsense that people believe that, and it's not been interrogated. And it just isn't true. 
You know, it isn't true. I mean, that fearing a teacher is not the same thing like respect, respecting and loving that teacher and being, you know, happy to be in, in, in school. It's a very, very different relationship. And so I'm, I'm talking about a placing a focus on these relationships where a sense of intimacy and presence and honesty and, you know, and faith in the student's capacity is like at the center. And that we, we trust that there's an organic human process that's always at work, that we're all going to learn together as a, you know, and that's what, the, that's what's been taken away from us. That's when life happens. Ha- life happens in relationship. All of these rules, all these, all this stuff that's created, it is to try to control life, to, to try to, you know, to structure it and control it in ways that actually don't work. I'm not, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to be someone to think that I'm saying, you know, we don't need structures. We need structures. You know, the structures are going to be there anyway. Nature has structures, but we need structures that are life affirming, you know, structures that really allow people to open up, to grow, to evolve. And to participate as you know, as true, genuine human beings with each other and the world, and and this means then that through that intimacy, those relationships get established. Where we have to be willing to see everything, the good. I always say the good, the bad, and the ugly, and that's why we have so many problems because we're not, you know, these damn TV shows and all this bullshit on the media. That I mean, it it, it has such a corrupting impact on people's understanding what human relationships are about. They don't happen. And I'm sorry, love does not happen in 45 minutes or an hour, an hour and a half. And yeah, that's not the way it happens. Or, you know, friendship doesn't happen that way. You know, there's, there's this like, you know, craggy paths we have to go through together. And it's because we go through together. We labor in, 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 you know, whether in the classroom or in the community, we labor together for common, you know, for common goals and com- common desires and needs that we come to understand each other. And we begin then to relate to each other in ways that is that transforms us. So it's not just about transforming something out there. It is we ourselves have to struggle for our own transformation. And it's hard. And it's hard to do because often people want to keep us in our little box. I mean, that's the other thing that happens. You know, as soon as you start to shine, they want to keep you in your damn little box and, and to fight yourself out of your box is an inside job in a sense. I mean, because. And the reason I say that is that it starts in here. I have to like really face why am I believing, you know, the, all of these limitations that are being put on me? Why, why, you know, why, why am I, you know, where, where is this fear coming from? And as a woman, as a working class woman, working in the academy for almost 40 years, I mean, I cannot tell you the brutality of, and the cruelty that I had to contend with because my political project was outside of the mainstream, you know, and you'll, you'll hear that. But then the worst part about it is when people who are on that main, you know, are are in the margins are fighting each other because they never learned how to have real relationships, genuine relationships. So then we want to talk about schooling and we don't, and we leave that piece completely out of it. The political life is a, is, a, is, a, is a particular relationship. You know, it has to do with power and how power gets distributed and how it, you know, how it moves in communities. So I think that, that for us to not look seriously at questions of relationships and the ways that people are traumatized and the ways in which people can be supported and in which, um, you know, we talk about, oh, empowering kids. I don't want to empower kids. I want to create conditions. You know, the kids will empower themselves. I mean, they will. You know, people, people want to feel good. They, they, they want, they will. I, I don't know. It's like why I've never been able to let go of this faith that I have, that we have a tremendous capacity in us to, to you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, you know, but it's, I mean, it's just, there's always this sense, like we have to be, you know, they have to lead us like with a ring or something. They have to, they have to, you know, our leash or they have to whip us into, into submissioners. And, you know, and, and what we're doing is we're fighting. We have to fight. We have to fight that it's all lies and we will not be able to move away from the kind of society that we have until we realize that that those particular attitudes do not serve the majority of human beings. They serve the, the few. 
who want to maintain power and control over resources, over, over including humanity. And the only way that we will be able to move forward in a different way is by refusing to remain in those, in those limited you know, definitions that have been created for us and be willing to really step into the fact that we as human beings have enormous potential, enormous superpower that's, that is tied to our capacity to build solidarity and relationships and community with one another. And that's, you know, that I would want every student to come out of my classroom, you know, being revived in the sense of understanding that, that communities, that we can build different kinds of communities and that communities begin with ourselves and our, you know, how we show up, how we are present, you know, and our willingness to love, not to be afraid of loving. And yeah, you're going to get hurt. Yeah. But if we have real community, you know, we, we support each other through, through those pains and through those struggles. That's, that's what the kind of solidarity that we need. And so in, in the classroom with kids, for example, you know, creating the kind of environment where they begin to support each other. And you, and you know that it's possible. Many, I mean, many of us know it's possible because we've done it, you know, and we've done it with, with students at different ages. So it's not, oh, they're too little. No, no, little kids, you know, university <laughs> students. We all, there's something about our capacity as human beings to respond to love. I mean, it is a political force that Brady understood. And when, when the greatest, you know, moments of, of social movement happen is that somehow in, the, in those moments, there is this kind of arrows, you know, this kind of love that, that is felt and, and that unites us. What is very hard is to sustain it because the structures all around us are doing everything they can to annihilate the, that level of connection and community between people. I mean, to me, that's the power in having conversations like this. So I, I reread Rethinking Paulo Freire yesterday in preparation for this podcast. And there's moments I'm going through that and it, it's illuminating. It's reaffirming that I'm not a crazy person. There are real ideas and other people out there that think the same way. Sometimes when we're talking about systems that can almost feel conspiratorial or outlandish, um, a lot of that's because we were programmed in school to think that the system's working, right? The, the hidden curriculum of school establishes that because I got good grades, that other people deserve to be worse off because I worked hard and they didn't, that kind of stuff. And as you were saying too, the media, the canonical nature of what's taught in schools is backed up by almost modern day Horatio Alger stories. Like you go on LinkedIn and every post is about how someone picked themselves up by their bootstraps. They became successful. So therefore you can too. Um, or even the, the literature that's fed to us in schools that feeds us a popular narrative. Um, the the book about uh, the kids stuck on the island and, and they're trapped. Uh, Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. Yeah, Lord of the Flies. Yeah. Where they found the actual thing the book was based on uh, and the kids were getting along just fine. They helped each other push through to escape. And it seems like ultimately when you find people outside of these assumed structures and systems that people tend to be naturally good. They tend to help and assist each other. It's the systems that get in the way that cause greed, individualism, the myth of meritocracy, uh, which you know is just as problematic as our education system is in general. I guess the last question would be uh, something I was thinking about when you were talking about escaping these systems as a teacher, parent, student. You wrote this in one of your books, uh, the, the concept of educating our fears which I think is a really cool phrase or terminology for understanding, like, how do I even do this? Because it's really hard to go against the grain. It's really scary. You could get fired. The news could come after you. Um, in today's political climate, you could be doxxed. People could be outside you know, my house and place me in actual physical danger. Um, and, and I get that. We've gotten phone calls from deranged people who want to take down the org, that kind of stuff. What does that mean to educate our fears uh, in 2022? Taking that full circle to what the purposes of education, you could certainly make the argument that individualism is an existential threat. It's all about you. You're a self-motivator. And if you get into a position of power, you're winning and successful. It's no wonder that the bulletin of atomic scientists say that we're 100 seconds to midnight. We're closer than ever to nuclear war, rampant cyber war, an ever-growing climate crisis. All of those things have the same thing in common. They're all STEM related. You make the most amount of money really in those kind of careers. 
but the problems aren't being solved. They're getting worse because at the end of the day, if that's all that I care about, why would I care about what's going on in another part of the world? Or why would I care that these problems aren't going to matter to me first? They're going to matter the most to poor people. Um, it's not my lived experience if I simply just focus on STEM, making money in college and career prep. That grand reimagining of the education system is very much in line uh, to be grandiose, saving the human race, which is an obvious, you know, it's a, it's a huge thing, but it's empowering as a teacher to consider that when I go into the classroom, it's not about just helping kids learn, but ensuring that we build a better world together. That's purposeful. It gives me a reason to push forward and do this work. Um, so, you know, we're in a time right now and so many folks are, are burning out faster than ever before. That's, that's partially, um, due to that. That makes me think of one more thing, uh, which is that point you just brought up, uh, meeting up part of the theory of change of our project is that we're in a time of connection like never before because of social media and other virtual spaces. It's only a click away to stay together in this movement and connect with like-minded people for support. The growth of online virtual spaces can be used for evil, but also for good. It's a resounding reverberated space or a reverberating space for, for impact. I think about the free schools movement in the 60s and 70s. They were doing a lot of awesome work, but ultimately it was so localized. There wasn't enough attention called to it at large, and a lot of people were working against it. So it phased out over time. I think establishing that idea today is easier. It's not easy, but it's easier because you can meet with other folks online. Uh, other like-minded people, you can access information quickly and realize you're not the only person thinking this way. That's what gives me hope is leveraging that technology to reimagine education and come together and, and make change. I think, it, I mean, it's it's interesting because we we always want to kind of his, historicize and, you know, what does it take now? I mean, what I think it, it, it takes what it's always taken, you know, which, which is, you know, to to come to a place where we understand our fears are linked to our experiences that caused us to believe in that fear. You know, there, there are experiences that say, you know, you should be afraid. Don't go through that door because, you know, if you go through that door, you know, the boogeyman's going to eat you or whatever, you know, <laughs> but I, I, I'm playing with that in, in, as a metaphor, but we get a lot of those kinds of messages. Um, we give them in education. Well, you know, if a student is not doing well at such a point, that means that they'll never go to college. Yes, that's just ridiculous. Oh, if they didn't learn to read by the time they were, you know, 13, they're never, you know, they're going to be literate. That, I mean, this, these are, these are lies or lies and certain people, you know, <laughs> uh, make a lot of money by perpetuating those lies, the rewards and punishment stuff that goes on that, that you know, that, that is, actually feeds into fear rewards and punishments don't do that because you're going to you know you're going to be punished and so we have to understand that the punishing that a punishing culture is an aggressive culture it is a culture of conquest and it is the manner in which a historical culture of conquest which is what schools are part of um that colonizing culture it it's perpetuated. And so we begin, as we understand then those relationships that they have to do with the manner in which we are, we are placed in these subordinate contexts, then, you know, we begin to see that the only way we can transform those, and in fact, the only way that we can deal with our fear truly, is both to understand where it originates within us and how it gets triggered, and to understand that in order to engage with that fear in the world, we need other people. We, it, 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 I think one of the frustrations for me is that I, I sometimes I, I say something that people just go like, ah, you know, and I'm like, I don't, I don't believe in individuals. I don't believe. I, I believe that that's one of the biggest roots that, that is, you know, they duped us with this notion of individualism and individuals, you know, that, I mean, think about it. None of us, could exist if it weren't for all of, I mean, all sorts of relationships and all sorts of connections in the world. I mean, we can't survive. We, we survive through those relationships and those connections and all of that. So to, to, to teach people that, oh, you're an individual, like, you know, and it's back to your comment about the Horatio Alger story, you know, it's like, oh, 
to see yourself that way, then what it does in many ways, it reduces your capacity for compassion of others. Because if some in, in your same situation, you can, it, it, it fuels a kind of egoic drive and an arrogance about who you are. And I believe that that has so much to do with so many of the problems. Why relationships are so damn difficult, you know, because in order to have a relationship, you know, you have to be willing to want to want to relate and allow yourself to be close. It's the same thing like a teacher. The best teachers are the teachers who are close to themselves. They're not afraid to be close to themselves and are afraid to be vulnerable. And the consequence is they create relationships where the students feel close to their teacher. Like even long after, you know, they're not even in the classroom anymore. They still feel a sense of love for that teacher. And that's because that teacher allowed them to come close. When we come close to each other, we can deal with our fears together. Not as individuals, we fear, we, because we understand that the fears that are out there are the fears that are generated. They have been generated deliberately as forms of suppression, you know, and often when, you know, we have to look at parenting, for example. I mean, there's issues around parenting that in the same ways that teachers perpetuate aggressive um, ways of being and perpetuate ways that perpetuate children's fears, parents do as well, thinking that you're doing, you know, doing it for their own good. We have so much work to, excuse me, to to do. But I know that for myself, if there weren't other people in my life, that I trusted, that I felt I could have intimate relationships with, that when I do feel afraid or I'm struggling, that I can really open up myself to them. And I know they're not going to judge me. I know they're always going to see me as me. And I know that they love me and they have my back because they know that I love them and I have their back. <laughs> that when we, when we build those kind of relationships, then the issue of fear just becomes, oh, okay, it's just fear. We're afraid. Okay, right now I'm really afraid about this or that. We can engage it because we know that love and relationships of love and caring and solidarity are far bigger than any fear than any of us could have. I mean, they're, they're so, you know, our relationships of community and solidarity are so much greater. And I think it's one of the lessons that students can learn when we create a real community in, in our classrooms, where they begin to see that by helping each other, you know, we are all. We're all moved, you know, in different ways and ways that make us happy when we're working together in ways that actually open up. It makes us learn more. We learn more. We are more open to learning, right? Because the construction of learning happens more organically and, you know, and more with more fluidity. And that's when we really see learning happen. You know, part of the reason why little kids learn, you know, so they can learn things that adults have a hard time learning, it's because we've lost that capacity. We've lost that capacity for fluidity, that that organic capacity to enter into our learning, you know, in a more free way. We have, you know, all these uh, complexes (laughs) that get created by, often created by parents and teachers who, who didn't, you know, they thought they were helping us, but they really were not. And then you spend a lifetime trying to you know, overcome, overcome the fears or overcome the trauma. Thank you again for listening to Human Restoration Project Podcast. I hope this conversation leads you inspired and ready to push the progressive process of education. You can learn more about progressive education support our cause. Stay tuned to this podcast and other updates on our website at humanrestorationproject.org.